0: You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. We're back. What can I say? It's fall. Some of us are coming out of a busy summer. Some of us are ramping up into what could be our build season. Others are ramping up and, and diving into summer if you're in the, the Southern Hemisphere. And perhaps even some of us are starting to, to gear down. Hopefully you'll have a chance to attend one of the events this fall. It would be great to see you in either Grand Rapids, Michigan or North Vancouver, British Columbia. A reminder, you can find details at frontlinesmtb.com events. As for our first episode of what is kind of a new season, I want to start with a check-in on some past guests. The conversation on the Facebook group has brought up some past themes. Some of you have been listening to past episodes, and I thought we'd circle back on a, a few conversations. As for episodes planned over the fall, I haven't set too much in stone. I'm confident with attending two events, there will be plenty of discussion to continue having. And that's exactly what this podcast is for. I had hopes of perhaps recording at both events. I'm not sure if that's going to be possible. I'm still a bit short on the financial goals of being able to purchase some of the additional recording equipment that I need. I do want to thank everyone who has made donations via PayPal. If you'd like to help, you can find that link on the support page on the website. Now, without any further delay, I'm your host, Bren Hillier, and this is episode 47 of Frontlines. We'll be getting into the wilderness discussion this episode, but before we do that, you might remember Tom Stusi from last episode before our summer hiatus. He's the executive director at the Vermont Mountain Bike Association and one of the organizers for the 2018 Mountain Bike State Summit in Grand Rapids, Michigan, November 6th to 8th. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So last time we spoke, it was about the Vermont Mountain Bike Association, but uh, but you're also involved with the Vermont Outdoor Innovation Coalition, uh, otherwise known as, as Voice. And and what is Voice?
1: Voice is an assembly of outdoor-minded commercial entities in Vermont that are very excited about the role that trail networks play in their the vitality of their business.
0: Essentially, the, the folks that make up Voice, we're, we're talking about bike shops, potentially resorts uh, as well. What other kind of uh, businesses make up that, uh, that coalition?
1: Construction companies, large gear shops, private foundations, uh, Cabot Cheese happens to be part of it, and a variety of others up. Vermont Housing Conservation Board, uh, Vermont Ski and Ride, Fuse Marketing, Outdoor Gear Exchange. Uh, there, there's just a variety of, of successful dot coms that are willing to participate.
0: Yeah, that's a it's a a very varied list for sure. You know the 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 ones that kind of pop into I, I guess there it, it speaks to the fact that there's a lot of secondary uh, benefactors of outdoor recreation.
1: Yeah, the interest is it kind of exceeds the outdoor the quote unquote outdoor domain. You know, a lot of folks in Vermont want to recruit top level talent from mo- many places and. The lifestyle that one can achieve in Vermont is a big part of that recruitment platform. If they can partner with and strengthen the trail networks and that lifestyle improves and they have a better opportunity to, to promote that. And when an active, talented person does relocate, their health costs go down. So for all types of businesses, uh, voice does make a lot of sense. And 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 the best part of it, too, is that it is a very different conversation from the bike shops and the smaller gear shops. And that being different leaves then space for those types of businesses to be direct supporters of the local chapters as well. So no one's stepping on anybody's toes with voice because it's two very different conversations.
0: So that, that kind of touches on perhaps one of the answers for my next question, but uh, what was the the reason for creating this group? What what was the uh, the genesis for it?
1: Well, I was talking to all my sponsors, you know, they were very you know happy with how things are going, they're excited. And of course, they have bunch of ideas and that these are all really really dedicated passionate people and a lot of my members you know of course are their customers and so everyone's talking to everybody and it dawned on me that, that my sponsors weren't actually talking to each other and articulating what does the trail infrastructure in vermont mean to my business and so just on a whim honestly i invited them all to some a uh, space to have this conversation and i led with what does the vermont trail infrastructure mean to you as a business person in vermont and i couldn't get them to stop there was a lot of enthusiasm lots of synergy uh, and from that early conversation voice was born
0: and so then what was the next step after that
1: Well, we had to figure out what our charter was going to be and what our agenda was and and in doing that um, a lot of a lot of conversational doors opened if you will with the state and other new partners try to decide what, what is it that we're gonna go after? What are our top priorities? And so that took a fair bit of time to get that done because there were a lot of opinions about that. And then that boiled down to, are there advocacy political things we wanna talk about? Are there are there ways that we wanna dig into and improve VIMBA from an operational perspective? Uh, and that, that conversation really has evolved a lot now into, we have 13, 14 businesses in voice now, and the goal is to get it as close to a hundred businesses as we can. And knowing that we're self-generating our funding for trails in Vermont, independently doing that, we want to be sure that there's room for more businesses to participate. So we've done two things right now. We're working on 18, making it such that there's reciprocal expertise and benefits going back and forth between the businesses that are invoice as a means to create a little bit of bottom line space to be investing in the trail network. And the next part would be to develop an incubator space. So anybody who's, in has been in business in vermont for five years or less can come in at a much lower rate and take advantage of all of the expertise from the other successful businesses in vermont from from a purely business perspective business development perspective
0: and so how does that uh reciprocation work so for your your kind of first point there what benefits does a business receive by being a member of voice
1: well, we're we're defining those going forward, but you know, the, the sort of low-hanging fruit example would be if somebody needs some marketing expertise or advice or a draft of something, they could turn that's in the group, they could turn to fuse marketing and say, What do you think about this project we're working on? Is there something that we can work with you on? And then in so doing, what sorts of what sort of discount could we receive by virtue of our sharing space in this alliance? And so if that were to save two or three percent on the bill. That potentially could be the entire investment invoice for that other company for the entire year
2: so
0: it it kind of becomes a, a you know a coalition certainly certainly one word for it, but a cooperative and and uh and and these groups are are working together not not just to improve the trails in Vermont but really to help each other exactly so does this organization have a a different effect with the state of vermont like you've got you've got vimba uh, and then you've got voice how how does the state does there does the state respond differently to both of these groups
1: it it does respond differently i mean vimba has a cooperative agreement with the state the forest parks and recreation just as as a corridor manager on public land and that that relationship is very healthy and wonderful and the relationship to to voice is now is, is evolving in many ways. Um, The state launched their own initiative just this last year called VOREC to confuse the alphabet soup further, um, which is the Vermont outdoor recreation, economic recreation collaborative. And their primary purpose is to generate opportunities for commercial enterprise in Vermont, both ones that are currently here and as a recruitment piece to bring more industry outdoor industry to Vermont. And so that is very exciting for voice and for VIMBA and for all trail based on province in Vermont it's a very good thing. Um, it hasn't been confusing. No one's, no one's toes are being stepped on. And it's, it's very, it's excellent timing primarily because the more success that VOREC has, the more outdoor minded businesses are in Vermont and the more outdoor minded businesses in Vermont, it's likely that the voices, the, their participation voice will also come with that relocation. So ultimately everybody's growing and supporting each other uh, as best we can. But the Vorek piece is fairly new just this last year and voice just hit its second year. So both of these initiatives are fairly new.
0: Now I, I've always kind of thought as Vermont as being a a, a a destination for for outdoor recreation but how has the state changed over the, the the, the years?
1: Well, I can certainly speak to the last five, five years. I just finished my five-year uh, mark with VIMBA. I think in that time, the chapters all co- coalescing to become a family of chapters, and that provided one entity with whom the state could communicate instead of 29, so that certainly is more of an efficiency for them, but I think two primary things have changed. Uh, membership is at an all-time high. Uh, we've been jumping by about 1,000 members a year from the previous year's total, which has been great over the course of the last four years. Um, and there's been a huge reattention that now paid to what is the outdoor economic value. What what is the engine in Vermont producing? And so the estimations have been somewhere anywhere from two billion to 5.5 billion in just in Vermont. And so now I think the state and the nonprofits are now very much of the mind to figure out what is the value that I bring. So nonprofits are stepping forward and saying. Like, for example, VIMBA, I can step forward and say, we represent 30,000 hours of volunteer time a year. And all the other trail-based nonprofits are representing X amount, and it's a lot. And the state, we would we'd be really stoked with more access and more streamlined proposal processes. And business community, um, we're self-generating our income, our revenue to be doing these projects together, both as a state and the trail-based community. Um, is there an opportunity for you to be um, investing in this? And the, the voice platform is a great opportunity for that. And so I think to really understand the value that we bring to ourselves and to the world as as visitors to our state, that now is very much center, front and center of our focus, much more than it was.
0: Yeah. How do we measure uh, economic impact? I know a lot of us as mountain bikers, we know that we are economic drivers, you know, we we see how much money we spend on not just bikes, but but just trips in general. I mean, we will go to places. We will, we're not, generally, we're not staying in tents. We're staying in hotels. Uh, many of us have, uh, a, you know, a taste for, for the better beers out there on the market, and we want a good meal after our bike ride. And so, you know, we know that we put money into communities, but how do we capture that information as advocacy groups, as folks trying to take the this information to land managers and government officials, like it it can't be easy, but how do we get started on trying to get this information?
1: Yeah, I think ultimately to put forth a strong empirical number that you can stand behind in, in, in any audience and in any room and at the risk of putting forth a really boring answer, it is spending some money on a very appropriately handled economic impact study. And it is a monumental investment Uh, that will pay off dividends in the long run. The the challenge with doing that as a trail-based nonprofit is how do I come up with 30 grand plus to actually pull this study off that I know is going to give me the the beta that I want, but that I can't afford. And, And that is a great opportunity to turn to your voice partners and say, look, if we can get this thing together, these are the things that I think we can achieve from an advocacy perspective. And and the other part of that is if you're going to align those resources to get that done, I think prior to doing that, you want to turn to the state land managers and say, look, if we can if we can empirically show these things, what then will happen? And, and without that assurance that the needle's gonna move after that investment, I would caution investing in an economic impact study of that caliber. But there are a variety of, of other methodologies that you can go through very much on the cheap to to at least Describe the types of participation, trailhead counters, surveys in parking lots, in-state, out-of-state license plate counts on sunny Saturday, fall days. Uh, There's a variety of ways that that can be done at the local level. But to really, truly go to the state and say these, this is our economic impact study, it requires a well-done and unfortunately expensive study.
0: But it sounds like a, a trail organization isn't alone in, in feeling those benefits. And so uh, looking to partners, and, and I guess that's what, what Voice has, has been really successful with, is, is finding other allies and other partners out there that are not just nonprofit trail organizations.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there, there are burger and beer places near trailheads in Vermont that are killing it.
0: Mainly because
1: of the mountain biking participation, and that there's a trailhead somewhere very close to their shop, that is someone that you could go to and say, we're, "We're building an alliance to get this this definitive thing done, that of which you're a part. Would you be willing to invest in our getting this work done?"
0: What would you say to a community that's that's kind of thinking like, this is something that I want here, you know, whether it's in my state or or even at a a slightly more micro level, and maybe even down to just one individual community, what would you say to kind of get this dialogue going with uh, businesses, companies? What's the first step?
1: Start with the businesses that you think have, that would have no interest in your project. Start there because you never know who it is. And who's riding that, that project or somewhere nearby that's just absolutely in love with it. Companies that aren't wrenching on bikes or building bikes or putting together the fancy new jacket or shoes, they love mountain biking just as much as the industry folks do. So I would say start with the most unlikely partners first. You could capture a whole new uh, audience for a
0: conversation. Mm, interesting. How can, uh, how can people take a look at what, uh, what Voice is doing and, and get some information about them?
1: Yeah, Vimba and all the voice information can be found at vmba.org online, and there is a voice link right across the top menu bar.
0: Awesome. What's in store for for the the new year?
1: Relative to voice. Uh, Recruitment, recruitment, recruitment. (laughs) Uh, We really want there to be a strong, strong network of businesses that are excited to have a conversation about what they're up to from their own business perspective with each other to really honing in on things that can be done uh, for Vimba and Mountain Biking Vermont from the big picture.
0: Thanks, Tom. I appreciate you uh, you taking the time to come back on the show and, and join us again.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: Just a reminder not only to check out the voice page on vimba.org, but also the 2018 Mountain Bike State Summit. You can find links in the show notes. My next guest is Lance Pysher. He's the president of the Bitterroot Backcountry Cyclists out in Montana. Lance is a past guest and a good friend of the podcast. He joined me to discuss his IMBA chapter on episode 15, and his voice was included in episode 25, which focused on bikes in wilderness. Now this topic is complex, and if you're not familiar or you're foggy on the details, then I encourage you to go back to that episode. A quick reminder, in Montana and Idaho, Trails are being closed to mountain bikers in wilderness study areas and proposed wilderness. These areas have not been designated by Congress, although at some point in the distant future they could be. Now I'll let Lance fill you in on what this has meant to him and his group. Hi Lance, welcome back to the show. Hi, how's it going? Good. So, uh, for those that that haven't been following, um perhaps could you just give us a, a quick history of of what's been happening on your trails over the last, you know, 2-3 years? Trying to go back
3: 10 years, that's what kind of all started there was the the uh Bidu National Forest started doing a travel plan process to decide where motorized would be on the trails and roads and somewhere not myself into that mix and Eventually, after 10 years, they decided they were going to close a bunch of areas to us in the the wilderness study areas in the area. Uh, That was 110 miles of trails they were closing, not because we were having impact, but because they might be wilderness someday. So after that, we decided that they really didn't do an adequate analysis of why they had to close the trails, so we joined forces with some motorized groups in the valley and filed a lawsuit to uh, fight those trail closures. And the result of the lawsuit was we got it. We won a temporary reprieve, and one on one access back on those trails. While the Forest Service has to redo some of the commenting periods of that over that
0: decision. Mm. And so, when did the the process of this lawsuit start?
3: Well, the process of the lawsuit started about two and a half years ago, mm. let's say.
0: And so the the lawsuit's gone through um, essentially you and, and the these motorized groups that, that you were with you've uh, you've won the lawsuit. What does that mean for the Forest Service now?
3: Well, I, I, I think win is a, a kind of a strong word. first off the motorized people didn't win any of their uh, any of their points. so the motorized people are still closed in these in these areas. We won on a small point that the Forest Service, did not follow their own procedures when they basically tripled in the number, number of mile trails they wanted to close on us without giving, giving us an adequate chance to comment on that. So basically, we have access to the trails until they can redo that commenting period. So for the meantime, we have access to those 110 miles of trails, and we've kind of jumped on that opportunity, and we've been having trail crews out uh, pretty much for the last month getting those trails reopened. So far, we've cleared close to 500 trees off these trails. These trails just don't see a lot of use. So when p- if people aren't on them for two or three years, uh, a, lot of, a lot of trees fall. And that's the ir- irony is no no one else is on these trails. For all intents and purposes, no one hikes on these trails. No one rides horses. Uh, but people do mountain bike on them. So basically, no one has been on these trails for three years. Yeah.
0: Well, and not only mountain biking, but you're maintaining them, which which just seems absurd to to kind of get get mountain bikers off of these trails if if they're the ones maintaining them. Yeah,
3: it, it was totally absurd. I mean, if if you had wanted to go in there to to hunt them all the time, you couldn't have. You couldn't have. You couldn't have past trails. I mean, like I said, uh, one trail be cleared all, over two hundred trees and about two miles of trail. I mean, you're no one can. The, the, the trails are impassable mm-hmm. no one's going up
0: there mm-hmm. it's incredible so 500 trees in in what is uh, 110 uh, miles of, of trail are you are you still going out there like is there still work to be done as far as clearing trails those
3: 500 trees are not on the 110 miles of trails they're probably on 10 miles of trail
0: <laughs> wow <laughs> incredible um so so a lot of work uh, ahead as far as the 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 trail work a lot goes. of work yeah wow. we're
3: we're we're querying we're, we're the uh the most popular trails the ones that people most, most likely want to ride and at least get those usable yeah
0: and so then you know the rest of the work what happens uh when this this comment period gets opened up again and and what are the next steps what happens uh, is access to these trails going to be lost uh, again and, and what's the timeline for that
3: yeah, so the, the the process now is there's a, uh, well, right now, w- about uh, actually early this week, the uh, there's people called the interveners. They aren't the Forest Service, and they're not us. They're people like the Winter Wildlife Alliance and Montana Waters Association. They filed a motion to get these trails closed to us again because they think that both us and the Forest Service are misinterpreting the judge's decision. So <laughs> we have to, there are 30 days where the judge g- gets to decide whether, <laughs> whether, whether the Forest Service are interpreting his order correctly, which we think that the judge is going to say, well, the Forest Service, you guys agree, why should we not just let that be? So we, we, we're confident that we're going to have access to, to these trails, but there's a small chance that these wilderness groups could get, have these trails closed to us within next month, although that's probably unlikely. Assuming that, that that doesn't happen, after the judge rules on that motion, there's another 60 days, to file an appeal on the decision, and we probably expect that, that, that a appeal will be filed by someone, whether it's learners groups or the Forest Service or us, we're pretty much counting on that that there will be an appeal and I know on our side we're, we, we still think that that the coming period is somewhat inadequate and we really really feel they need to do a full EPA analysis on, the, on their decision because we just don't think they really had the, the analysis to prove that they needed to, to close these trails. So there's a good chance that we will be appealing this, even if the other groups don't. Obviously, if the other groups appeal, we will obviously fi- fight that, that, that uh, attempt to reverse the judge's decision. And if it does go to appeal, to, to get to the Ninth Court, that takes about two years to appeal before they'll they'll hear the case. So we're assuming that we probably have access to the shales for about the next two years, while this continues to win itself through the court system. Hmm. Of course, if we do appeal, that's that costs more money. <laughs> yeah. So our, our, our the thing is if, if we either appeal or are forced to appeal by the other side, we'll need to raise another fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, pay the lawyer to continue the process. Yeah.
0: Now if um if some of the the motorized groups uh, appeal this um it, and did you mention that that you're you're gonna be supporting them on that decision as well.
3: Well, yeah, so far, they are less inclined to a, uh appeal. They, didn't, they don't really have much of a case to appeal at this point like we do. We, we think the, mo- the mountain bike case was a much stronger one. So our, our lawyer agrees that we probably have a ha- harder case for appeal than the motorized groups do mm-hmm. at this point. So going forward, it's probably just going to be the mountain bikes by themselves. So any appeal is going to be just mountain bikes. Do mountain bikes belong in water study areas? It's, it, there's going to be no other issues involved. It's, it's not going to be whether whether snowmobiles should be there or dirt bikes or ATVs. It's one simple question: should should we be allowing mountain bikes in wilderness study areas?
0: Yeah, and, and again to clarify, wilderness study areas not uh, congressionally designated uh, wilderness areas, um, and that's a, a big correct difference that that needs to be made. I think for for some people out there that might not understand that difference. And I think, you know, without going too far into that history, I think there's, there's plenty of resources for, for people to kind of, to, to learn more, but what can people do to help? Um, Is there anything that they can do now? Is there going to be a moment when, when you're going to need help? How can people stay in touch with you Uh, and, and the Bitterroot backcountry cyclists? uh, What can everybody do?
3: We'll be having fundraising here in the the near future to fundraise that we don't have exact fundraising mechanism set up for talking about whether be a check shot or GoFundMe or some mechanism to try and raise more money to raise that $20,000 we need to keep the lawsuit appeal process going. Uh, beyond that, really, we want we want the people to come here and ride so that when, 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 to, when it comes to making comments, people can say, I rode there, we love these trails, we're seeing no one else on there, um, we think my bike should, should be long there. I, I think that comments have more weight when people have actually experienced the area rather than, Repeating what someone else told them. So really, we want people to come here and ride and see what wilderness primitive trails are like in Montana.
0: Well, Lance, thanks so much for for taking the time to to chat with me and and giving us a an update on, on this. I'm uh, i'm happy to hear that the you know the trails are back you know and even though there's this chance that it, it could still be temporary um, i'm sure getting 110 miles of, of trail uh back on the the list of being able to ride is uh is a great feeling i know that that doesn't mean that the the work is done in fact you know there's a lot left to do um but um you know it's it's nice to to kind of hear some success coming out of this right now
3: it is yeah we're 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 pretty happy. We're hoping this gives us a chance to work with the other groups who may oppose us and find find a solution for this for the long term. We don't think lawsuits are the, are the solution. We, we, in the end, we think we need to work together, <laughs> and maybe this gives us the breathing case. we need to find a solution for the
0: long term. Thanks, Lance.
3: All right. Thanks again.
0: Included in the show notes are a few links I encourage you to check out. The first two are Trail Forks links, the first to the Sapphire Wilderness Study Area and the second to the Blue Joint Wilderness Study Area. If you turn the polygon function on, you can see the area that's affected and which trails that includes. The other thing to do is follow the Bitterroot Backcountry Cyclists and donate. Another link you'll find in the show notes is their Trail Karma page on Trail Forks and a link to savemontanatrails.com. Lance mentioned working with other groups and finding a long-term solution, and that's what my next guest is here to discuss. Tony Ferlisi is the Executive Director for Mountain Bike the Tetons. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me.
2: Thanks so much, Brent, for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: So recently, you were uh, representing Mountain Bike stakeholders uh, with the Wyoming Public Lands uh, Initiative Committee, and, and so uh, what was that committee and and, uh, and what was the goal of it?
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, I represent uh, or represented the mountain biking stakeholders uh, in Teton County, Wyoming, as part of the Wyoming Public Lands Initiative Committee. And this committee was basically tasked uh, in Teton County and other committees throughout the state of Wyoming. Uh, We were tasked with coming up with recommendations on how to move forward with management of two U.S. Forest Service wilderness study areas located within Teton County. And the committee was made up of various uh, stakeholder representation. So, um, you know, myself representing mountain bikers, uh, there was a representative from the backcountry horsemen, there was a oil and gas uh, representation, winter motorized representation. Uh, summer motorized, uh, numerous conservation groups, and a few uh, public uh, members at large. And so the whole idea was really for us to to kind of workshop this thing, to come together with monthly meetings um, and be able to communicate to what was in it for our particular stakeholder groups or for, you know, the landscape as a whole and be able to provide recommendations on how to manage these places uh, moving forward to the Teton County commissioners uh, who would then kind of run it up the flagpole uh, to our uh, state uh, federal delegations uh, in hopes of, of uh, getting a bill introduced uh, in Washington, D.C., Uh, Some federal legislation that would dictate, you know, management prescriptions for these two wilderness study areas in Teton County moving forward. So kind of a complex process, but um, they wanted to they really wanted to kind of throw it back to the stakeholders to come up with the best way uh, to manage these places. And so I was I was a part of that representing mountain bikers and mountain biking in these these areas.
0: That seems like a, a great opportunity. It's always nice to hear um, land managers and and the likes kind of wanting to hear from from stakeholders and and give us this opportunity. Um, now unfortunately in in August, uh, things have, uh, that committee kind of dissolved a, a little bit and and some folks walked away. so So what happened um, recently?
2: Uh, we were, as a committee, um, we were given a deadline uh, to come up with uh, recommendations to submit to the Teton County Commissioners in Jackson. And instead of one document, you know, one sort of rec- recommendation proposal, uh, we ended up with three. We, we weren't able to achieve consensus on one, you know, we ended up with three, we ended up with a a very, very conservation heavy proposal on one end advocating for a, a couple hundred thousand acres of new wilderness. We ended up with one that was, uh, Recommended a little bit less uh, than that with some um, some accommodations for other user groups. And then we ended up with uh, a third proposal, which was basically a release, advocated for a release of these two wilderness study areas back to U.S. Forest Service planning. And so, you know, now the commission, the Teton County Commission, is left with these three proposals to try and wrangle with. And it left a, a number of members of the committee, myself included, pretty frustrated that you know, over the course of two years, we weren't able to come up with, uh, with a nice, tightly packaged proposal uh, for them to deal with. So um, it's in there. It's in This, this is, process is now in the hands of the Teton County commissioners and all of us committee members have basically now taken a step back and gone back to our day jobs.
0: Interesting. So, you know, it kind of sounds like you've, you've got your, your outlying options, um, which uh, depending on, on which camp you're in is sounds like the best option. I mean, obviously if you're a conservationist, you're, you're looking for option A and, and if you're uh, a recreationist or a mountain biker, you're, you're looking for option C, but, you know, compromises is, is, is meeting in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. you know, why, why wasn't that something that, uh, that something in the middle could be a- agreed upon? Why, why the lack of, of consensus there?
2: That's a, that's a great question. And that's something that I think all members of the committee really wrestled with myself included. I mean, I'll tell you, I lost sleep over this thing because, you know, especially as mountain bikers, we're, we're not only advocates for our trails, but for the landscape that those trails flow through and are woven around and through and so you know I thought it was an excellent opportunity for you know all, all of us to kind of come together and build some bridges here you know working face to face every day and ultimately um, you know I think I think what happened in, and this is from my perspective was that we started to look at the landscape, in a much larger capacity, you know, instead of focusing on these two very specific areas, we started talking about doing, you know, some horse trading and making some compromises in other areas too. And a lot of stakeholder groups, mountain bikers, especially got really uncomfortable with that. And so we started to kind of back away, shy away from, from making some pretty big compromises that, we, no one in the, in the mountain bike community really felt comfortable with. Um, you know it's, it, it, it's easier for us, I think, at least in this region, to focus on specific trails or regions unto themselves where we can really dig down into the weeds. And here it just it just spun to a scale that, that us uh, as mountain bikers and a number of other groups just weren't totally comfortable with.
0: Yeah. It's, it's uh, unfortunate. I, I feel, uh, you know, the, there is obviously there's something that needs to be given up when, when we try to, to come to compromise, but uh, it, you know, I, I do honestly feel that, uh, that there's not much left for mountain biking to kind of offer in a lot of ways when it comes to these areas, there's nothing remaining. Um, you know, mountain bikers are boxed out. And so we're left to try to ask for something, um, and so that really kind of brings the compromise uh, from our perspective to a challenging point. You know, is it is it just a power struggle? Or are we kind of just seeing that right now? Conservation groups are, are hold more power than mountain biking, and so they're kind of really boxing us out of of these dialogues.
2: You know, I, I think I think that is the case uh, in some regards. But I also think I've noticed a significant shift in in power and in you know the social capital that mountain bikers hold in communities like the Tetons. You know, voices are are becoming louder and we're we're putting our money where our mouths are, so to speak. You know, we're we're displaying that we have. Really, function like high-functioning relationships with the agencies, with other community members, and so um, you know, I think we're we're making progress um, with regard to you know conversations with the conservation community, but we're still we're still in a spot where you know we're seen in a lot of cases as non-productive members of you know the the greater landscape you know protected landscape community you know we're still seen as as potentially detriment to these places and even though you're seeing you know more and more scientific you know peer-reviewed journal research coming out explaining impacts of mountain biking on mountain bike trails and multi-use trails as not being as significant and same with you know with social impacts um, still there's, there's this thought that, Oh, mountain bikers in this area that, mean, that mountain bikers are going to overrun this area or they're building trails and it's ruining the landscape that still does exist. And we're doing everything we can to change that dialogue. And I think we're making progress, but there, there's still this idea that we can't coexist, um, you know, amongst other uses in, in these landscapes. And that that's really tough right now, especially an area like the Tetons where, we don't have a lot left to work with, you know. We've got two huge national parks and a, a bunch of acres of capital W wilderness surrounding us. So we're trying to use the remaining acres that we have as productively as possible, and and it's uh, it's an uphill battle still for sure.
0: So uh, there was representation from from resource e- extraction. Uh, you know, what was their take uh, on this committee? What input did they have? Um, what do you think their takeaway was?
2: Yeah, there there was uh, representation from uh, from a few of the extractive uh, industries, um, mining and oil and gas. And they realized that they had something to give here um, with these two places and pretty early on um, said, you know what, we can uh, remove ourselves from this equation. Um, We can advocate for, uh, you know, a complete removal of any opportunities for um, oil and gas or mineral exploration and extraction from these areas. So pretty early on, they they were willing to give uh, here, which was pretty cool. Um, you know, there, there aren't a ton of opportunities that have been identified in these areas in Teton County for oil and gas uh, and mineral extraction. But you know, times change, technology gets better and we don't know what the future brings. And they were willing to sit down at the table and say, you know what, these places, we don't need to be here. That's okay. So, um, so they, they played right into that pretty well. That's
0: awesome. I mean, that is, uh, that's great to hear. That's, that's one positive to kind of take away from that. So absolutely. What's your personal takeaway from, from this whole experience?
2: you know, through this process, I had the opportunity to meet with so many different people just one-on-one over coffee, on a ride, over beers, um, folks that I, I didn't, had never met before. And the mountain bike community here cares so much about this place and their trails and opportunities to continue to work on their trails. You know, they showed up to these meetings, these meetings were public meetings, um, so that the public could attend and then submit, you know, public comment at the end, mountain bikers showed up regularly. I mean, these were shop employees. They were, you know, just, uh, you know, folks who had lived, have lived here forever and have been riding mountain bikes here. And they all spoke. I was really impressed like with how articulately they spoke and the passion that they have here is, this is not a, a silent kind of laissez-faire group at all. These are vocal active members of the community and that, man, it gave me so much confidence and hope in making, you know, bigger decisions moving forward. So, um, definitely want to make that point that, that it was, uh, it was really, really awesome to see all the participation from the mountain bike community in this.
0: Is there a timeline on when a decision is going to be made, uh, for the, uh, for the land manager?
2: Sure. That's a that's a great question. So uh, I think that's a bit in flux right now. Uh, The Teton County Commissioners are currently reviewing these three proposals um, and deciding amongst themselves how they want to move forward Uh, in about two weeks time. Uh, they will open up a public a 30day public comment period uh, where folks will be able to log on to the Teton County Commission website um, and submit their own public comments on what they think the commission should do with you know any of the three of these proposals um, and so I anticipate uh, we're looking at mid, you know, early mid October, uh, before a decision is made by them on what to send, uh, to the next level.
0: Perfect. And I assume that, uh, that input, uh, information and links to where, where folks can, can submit that input is is going to be shared on the, the mountain bike, the Tetons Facebook page.
2: Correct. Correct. We'll share it on social media. We'll have it in our, our monthly newsletter and on our website, um, and hopes of a lot of our partners in the region will be able to share that same information with their, with their folks as well. Excellent. I'll be
0: sure to include those, uh, links
2: in the, in the show notes then. Great. Great. Well, well,
0: Tony, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with
2: me. I, I really
0: appreciate this.
2: Oh yeah. Brent, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you and happy to happy to share this, uh, this info.
0: You'll find links to Mountain Bike the Tetons to stay in touch and stay in the loop of what they're doing in the show notes. Now, I've had a number of conversations over the break on the topic of IMBA, wilderness, and the Sustainable Trails Coalition. What I've heard from some is if you live outside the East Coast or outside of urban areas, then IMBA doesn't serve you. On the flip side, I think it goes without saying that the Sustainable Trails Coalition does not serve everyone either. If your trails aren't affected by wilderness, then they have no relevance to you. I can certainly understand both perspectives on this, but what does not serve any of us is division. Now more than ever, mountain bikers and recreationists in general need to work together. Over the summer break, Arizona senator, Republican, Vietnam war hero, and POW John McCain lost his fight with terminal brain cancer. I know that if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll know that I'm Canadian. And and somewhat recently, Canada lost an inspirational leader to brain cancer as well. But before we lost Gord Downey, he asked our Prime Minister to do something. Gord spent the last months of his life demanding that we ask questions about what we did wrong as a nation. And unfortunately, not a lot has changed. Indigenous sovereignty is still ignored in the name of the economy, and violence and murder continue to happen without accountability or punishment. So if you live in the United States, please heed John McCain's words. Incremental progress, compromises that each side criticize but also accept, just plain muddling through to chip away at problems and keep our enemies from doing their worst isn't glamorous or exciting. It doesn't feel like a political triumph, but it's usually the most we can expect from our system of government operating in a country as diverse and quarrelsome and free as ours. So what does this have to do with mountain biking? There's very little in the world that I don't somehow connect to mountain biking. Mountain biking happens on this world. And as such, it is not and cannot be an escape from this world. Over my summer break, I did what I promised I would do. I read, I researched, and I thought, I thought long and hard. I took the words of someone I value to heart after we butted heads. I read the book, had to think, and I've recognized how being divisive does not serve us. It does not turn the calendar over to the tomorrow we want, the tomorrow we need. For those of you living in Montana, I understand the challenge, the heartbreak that trail loss can cause. As Lance Peisher said way back in episode 15, he thought that Imba had forgotten about them. And more recently, for those on the front lines of wilderness you were hurt by IMBA again with their statement against H.R. 1349, the timing of which was unnecessary and divisive. But if IMBA doesn't serve you, that doesn't mean that they don't serve others. You cannot protect your own backyard trails at the loss of the rest of the country's backyard. And even though the East may not have wilderness, they lack land. And urban trails are valuable and imba's efforts in developing urban trails is needed urban trails create mountain bikers and when only 187 people stood up for biking in the boulder white clouds by writing letters to congress then more mountain bikers is exactly what montana needs and imba supporters need to stop writing off supporters of wilderness as being unhinged the amount of trail loss has been astounding. Anger needs to be forgiven and understood. This is not an us versus them issue, but compromise is required. And compromise means giving up something you want in order to gain something you need. And I think all of us need to ask ourselves, what is it that we need? What does this world need? And as stewards of all types of outdoor spaces and advocates for all people, how can we change this world? Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at FrontlinesMTB. You can send me an email or audio file to info at frontlinesmtb.com. You can stream the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you haven't done so already, leave us a review at wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontlines MTB Book Club remember a portion of any purchase made on amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast check out the show notes for a number of links mentioned throughout the episode and you'll also find a link to an amazon wish list if you're curious about the kind of equipment that is needed to bring this show to new places next episode we'll be hearing from patrick kell grants manager at imba and he'll be explaining what's happening in Calienta, nevada music as always is by lee rosevere production notes by jennifer pride artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher Watson of BGW Creative. This episode is dedicated to late Senator John McCain. And if you have the opportunity, I highly recommend watching the HBO special For Whom the Bell Tolls. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.